on water. And there are canals instead of streets. And there are these uh, boats or uh, gondolas, I guess, in, instead of the boats. And people that go there, the visitors, they are amazed about the, the stability, the very beauty, you know, but the, the foundations of these ancient buildings that have existed in this water over years and years and years and years and years, hundreds of years. What's the secret? Well, uh, the Italians, um, just the Venetians here, they found out that there was this kind of wood long before there was concrete, which we use to support our bridges and our great skyscrapers. Long before that, they found this wood that would get harder and harder and harder over time. It would be harder than what any kind of concrete would be. And it would be able to endure. And so as you look at that city, you see a great number of those um, wood planks, all that wood that they had was built underneath there for the foundation, really, of the buildings and uh, to support, I guess, really that city. Now, we think of us and we think of uh, the foundation. Sorry about that. The stage is really hollow. It's not a great foundation. I could cave through it. I feel, I feel it just going like this. You probably hear it out there. But a wooden cross was sunk into Calvary's Hill. And that is the foundation. And when we think of that, that is our hope. That is where our hope lies. And without that, we have nothing. We're building on sand and not the rock of Christ. Christ and Christ crucified. That's our message. That's our grace. Uh, you cannot have Christ without the cross. The two go hand in hand. And we just happen to be at the heart of this. The very hope of salvation for sinful man. Fallen man. The fallen condition of man is being exposed in an extreme way as we look at the very crucifixion as we continue on in our study in Matthew. Um, this gospel account that we look at all the way through the book of Matthew has really been focused to this area. We've spent all these years looking in Matthew and it's really been pointing to this. This occasion. That's where we're at. So we're looking at the account of the crucifix. And of course, with that we get great doctrine. You think of the atonement. And you think of uh, Him paying the penalty. The atonement story is just incredible. And we looked at last week about the soldiers where they were torturing Christ. And we know that's a despicable thing that they did. Although this is all part of the plan of God. This is all in His sovereignty. But at the same time, they're held responsible for what they did. Now, they were Roman soldiers. They weren't Jewish. They really didn't know anything about Jesus. And if they did, it was very little. All that they knew is this is their job to torture him and crucify him. So they did it. They committed a cruel and a very hateful, wicked act on a fellow human being. They're doing their job. But so goes the way of fallen man. And uh, that's the condition that uh, we bring forth. Now today we're going to look at a story that deals with the Jews. Focuses on basically them. And how they treat this Jesus. And it's despicable. It, the scorn that they have for him is just incredible. They treat him like he is a Roman. And they want him crucified. They're going to be held far more accountable than Pilate ever will be. And even those Roman soldiers. Because these guys knew Something about Jesus. Some of them knew very much about Jesus. And this just shows how far fallen man can go. How far can he go? We think of all the sexual escapades that's happening in our nation and in the world today, and it seems like that's all you hear. And then other things that are just terrible. How far can it go? Well, I think we saw the worst of mankind when they killed God. They killed Jesus Christ, put him on the cross, put a, one of the greatest tortures on man that has ever been known. And, and today we're going to look at basically three different groups. We're going to look at three different kinds of uh, people 
who are really in the same group. But what it is, it's showing that this is mankind here. And you can take one group, and they're the ones who are the criminals. And we're going to call those the bad guys, all right? We know about the bad guys, and the bad guys are all the, the Hitlers and Stalins and Lenins and all those guys, and they need to be put into hell forever. Bad guys. But then we get another group, and they're actually the average Joes. They're the average person. Matter of fact, these are people that might even go to church or to synagogue at that time or to temple. And they might have even followed Christ. Yes, that's right. Matter of fact, they did. That's two groups. Average people, bad people. Then you have the religious people. And I mean religious down to the very teed. Down to the very detail, these guys are religious. You know the kind. Religious to the, what favors them, of course. And so that's the, the leaders. So you have the bad. How about the good, the bad, and the what? <laughs> you guys said it. <laughs> the common, right? The good, bad, the common, or the, uh, um, the leaders here. It doesn't matter what type one is in. They're all in, in the same position no matter what they seem on the outside. They're all together. Everyone needs to see Christ crucified and see Him as their Savior for their sins. That's the way you have to view it. But in this Act 10 that we have today, we've seen a lot of different things leading up to this. Now we see uh, this thing where people do not see Him as Savior. Last week we looked at it. They didn't see Him as Savior. The week before they didn't see Him as Savior. But there He is in all His glory. You can see the glory of God in all of this. You see His majesty. But it doesn't look like it outwardly. So let's go to uh, verse 38 of Matthew 27. After they um, have shown that He is the King of the Jews, they have the placard up there where everybody can see. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. Everybody knows about this. Here's a, an all too familiar story. And just like I've said in the past few weeks, it's awful easy just to kind of cruise by this and say, I already know this. And I'll be glad when we get to the next book. And in some ways, I could almost say that myself because as I study throughout the week, it's like, okay, how can I say this? And make sure that people stay awake and stay alive because <laughs> we know this story. And I'm not going to say anything new, but I hope it will pique our interest and focus on the cross again. That's what I'm here to remind us of. The two robbers. Now what's the meaning of robbers? Well, the Greek word means not one who just steals. He's one who murders. He's one who plunders He's one who is a rapist. That's the kind of guy that Barabbas was, and that's the word that was used for Barabbas earlier. Uh, look in John 18.40. This is John's account of this same story. Then they all cried again, saying, Now this man, but Barabbas, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. In our English word, it says a lot, but it doesn't say it all. In the Greek, and that's why, you know, I don't want to get too technical using Greek words, but it really comes in handy when you realize that this guy is much worse than a robber. If you're just a robber, you don't go up on the cross. You don't get crucified for being a robber. But you do become crucified because you're worse than a robber. You're a murderer. You're an insurrectionist to the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, you're a threat to not only the Romans, but also the Jews. I mean, this guy is notorious. He's one of the worst. That's Barabbas. The two guys that are along with him, probably, and I won't say it dogmatically, but probably are cohorts with him. 
Because they are getting crucified too. They're not just robbers, it says here in Matthew. They're the same word in the Greek that's used for Barabbas that's used for them. They're probably murderers, plunders. They killed, caused all sorts of havoc there in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, all over uh, Israel. Um, they're probably Jewish. I, it, you know, it doesn't say specifically, but I would tend to think that's what's going on here. And they were due to be crucified. Barabbas was probably be, to be the one in the middle. And we've already talked about that. What a great picture of penal substitutionary atonement as Jesus took his place on the cross. What a picture. I'm not so sure that Barabbas really knew that. He did know physically anyway, though, didn't he? This is their messianic hope on the cross. The Jews are looking at him, and this is what's been prophesied in their scripture. He's their only hope. Hanging on the tree. So he is crucified with them. The two robbers were crucified with him. You have the word with. And you think about that and you go, boy, this is humility. This is humiliating. Jesus is with murderers, robbers, plunders, terrible people. And he takes his place and has himself put up on the cross. He could have gotten out of this, couldn't he? But he didn't because he has that point to do for us. Now, these are seedy criminals. And they are certainly a reproach. They do a reproach to Christ. And he is identified with them. If you are an average Joe out there and you're walking along the road and you see these people on the cross, you're going to say, what terrible people. And you have these robbers. Jesus is in the middle. What does that make Jesus? It looks like he's even the captain of this little cohort of theirs. So you think of what uh, what this means. It makes him no better than a, a convict who is evil and wicked. This is humiliating as it can be as people see him up there. This is another Old Testament scripture that's fulfilled. How many have we seen fulfilled in the last few hours of Jesus here? It just is chock full of one passage fulfilled after another. And of course, Matthew appeals to that, and so does Mark and Luke and John, as they take from the Old Testament and realize this was mentioned hundreds of years before. It's all the way down to the details. Of course, you have to think of Isaiah 53. Another one is Psalm 22. Have you ever read that and really pondered upon Psalm 22? Some of the statements that he made on the cross are there. Incredible what happens. Let's go to Isaiah 53.12. Let's look at this. And, and what this does is it attests to the inspiration of Scripture. It attests to the fact that what God said in the Old Testament is true as He comes back and improves it. That's what's so great about prophecy. No other religion has prophecy. And if they did, it would bury them. So they don't dare mention things like that. And if they are, they're very sketchy, very shadowy, and you can make it to say anything you want. Uh, what do we say? Isaiah 53.12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Good news there. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. Look at this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered. He was considered to be one of them. Now, granted, the transgressors is us. That's us, isn't it? But yet, physically, there there were two there on the side of him. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We all can identify with that, though. It's like we were there. I think W.A. Criswell said one day that... um, uh, he had a dream and he saw the soldier taking that whip and the cat and that nine tails and uh, as he was punishing and scourging Jesus, 
as he looked at that soldier, the soldier turned around and looked at him very oddly. W.A. Criswell then replies and says, that soldier was me. I did that. So we're, uh, we were all in on this, even though we weren't there physically, but in another sense we were. We were. And when he died for our sins, we were there with him. Now, Christ being crucified is not only with them, but he's between them. And he's, it's like he's the leader of the transgressors. This is the most humiliating situation that uh, a man could have. And he's reviled now by these, these terrible robbers. And what we're going to do is go to verse 44. We're, we're going to skip a section, and we'll be back to 44 later. But here's what the robbers were doing. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They're both giving reproaches to Christ, reviling him, cursing, blaspheming him, saying the worst things terrible. And they're dying there with him. And they join in with the crowd and with the religious people and they're hurling insults while they have not a whole lot of breath to say a lot of things. You would think that they're going through the same torture at least they would shut their mouths and say, hey, I know what he's going through. This is terrible. But you know what? This shows how depraved man can expose himself. He already is depraved. That's his nature. But he shows it more and more. Jesus had never done any harm to them. And I believe that his righteousness is what made them very angry at him. That they would do it too. They knew how evil and wicked they were and what they had done. But they look at Christ and they know that he's innocent. At least we know one of them sure does. Later on we, we can look in back and say we know what happened out of one of those. But naturally wicked hearts and they join in with the crowd saying those same kind of things. So that's one group. That's the bad people. We can say, yeah, yeah, we know. We know what bad people do. And that's just their nature. But what about the, the common people? Some of them are maybe not so bad. They're not necessarily really good, but they're, you know, somewhere in between. Common people pass by. So we go back to Matthew. We look at verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. There's our second group. These are the common people. People traveled on the road. They traveled right by Golgotha. And uh, we know that that's also considered a, kind of a hill of the skull. And it's all hollowed out. It looks like a skull, right? We've talked about that. Well, as they passed by, this hill was up there on the roadside, but it's up where everybody can see it. Lift it up. It's on stage. This is a whole theatric thing anyway, what the Romans are doing, because they want everybody, such as the Jews, to know this is what happens if you go against our government. If you turn against the Romans, this is what we do. And remember, they did this to thousands and thousands of Jews. So it was for all to see. That was what it was designed for. And uh, I wouldn't want to be caught and put up on that cross, right? What a warning. Well, once again, another prophecy is being fulfilled here and that people come by wagging their heads and mocking Him. You know, pointing the finger and going like this. Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. That great Psalm 22 which is so detailed. And if I didn't really believe in Jesus Christ, I would at least look at some of the prophecies and see if some of these really came true. I would at least examine that. If there is such a thing as eternal life, I would examine some of these great prophecies. On 22, 7 and 8, what does it say? All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, the wagging of the head, saying... He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. 
Let him deliver him since he delights in him. If that's really the Son of God, then the Father will take care of that, right? Uh, this is that great psalm that starts in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? That's one of them there. Verse 14, I think of, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Some doctors have searched this out and um, tested out some things and did it scientifically and showed the things that would happen at a crucifixion. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. But I can count all my bones. No bones broken. Isn't this incredible? Just one of these to come true. How about eight of them? You guys know about the silver dollars of Texas, right? I'm not going to repeat that. But, you know, you can go on down. You can see this is all just about his death. Now, granted, some of this has to do with David as he wrote this, but it really pointed to the Messiah. This is a messianic song in its fulfillment. So another prophecy fulfilled. These guys are hurling abuse. This uh, common crowd, they're blasting him. And, and in the Greek, it means a continual. Continual tense that they keep on blaspheming him, wagging their heads, abusing him vocally. They liked his miracles, and they liked his teaching. Matter of fact, some of these same people, just a few days ago, were observing him come into the holy city of Jerusalem on the donkey, showing himself to be the king. Hosanna in the highest. That's what they're saying. That's what some of these same people here are. And now, as they had been praising him, now are ridiculing him. They turn against him. How can that happen in a short amount of time? I think one thing, you had the chief priests, the elders. Those guys are there. We'll see them in the next verse. That they're there. They are probably telling everybody why he's up there. He said he was God. He said he was the Son of God. Look at him now. If he's really the Son of God, would he really be hanging up there? They are broadcasting this all over the place where everybody will know because there's a placard up there that says what? King of the Jews. They didn't put that there. They couldn't take it down. Pilate put that there. And so they're saying, King of the Jews, you've got people coming into the city that don't know what's going on and they're looking up there and there's such a big deal going on and now it's being broadcast. So they start joining in with the crowd too. And, you know, this is a bad, evil, wicked man. And if you don't go along with the leaders, the religious leaders, what might happen? They might kick you out of the temple or something worse. They might put you up there. You know... You're going to be taken account of. They're going to take note. So maybe you better join in with the crowd. Isn't that what people do? If something seems to be not popular, but it's truth, but it's not popular, I have to make a choice here, and uh, I think I'll go along with the crowd here. Yeah. This gospel thing, I don't know about that. That's a little bit too much cost for me. So you've got these guys wagging their heads taunting. They're misrepresenting the very statement that Jesus had made about the temple. Some time ago, He had made a statement. That was distorted in court. They couldn't even get the story right in that. You remember that. But early in the ministry, Jesus had mentioned a spiritual truth that they didn't get. That's usually the case. He was talking about the Jews killing Him and then in three days, He would rise again. He's the temple. And he, He's the one that will be rebuilt. Okay, It was about His death and about His resurrection, which is really nothing new. It's what the Gospel in the Old Testament has been saying all along. Isaiah 53. Psalm 22. Other passages. They wanted to take it as He was going to tear that temple down <laughs> and then three days build it right back up again. Yeah, this is one of the great wonders of the world, folks. 
by the, by the time of 30 A.D., I mean, this temple was incredible with all of its white marble, the sun coming down and it's just glistening and the gold that you have around there. And he says, the temple's going to go down three days. It'll be rebuilt. It's himself. So they say, yeah, right, you're going to build that in three days. This thing took decades to build. What a ridiculous statement. So that's the kind of thing that they're doing. If you go back to John 2, we'll look at, uh, look at that statement that Jesus made. You're probably familiar with it. Look at it anyway. John 2.19, um, Jews are asking, hey, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And he tells them the greatest sign, crucifixion. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. Three days, I'll raise it up. Of course, they said, 46 years to build this temple. He raised it up in three days. But he is speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. That's what it's about, folks. Just believing the word of God. Jesus said it. It came true. The disciples go, oh, wow. That's what that meant. It really took root, finally. Because the Holy Spirit was now making an effect on them like He hadn't before. Uh, Anyway, uh, let's go to Matthew 26, verse 61. This is where the false witnesses come up and give just an embarrassing terrible testimony that everybody in the court there could see that this was a lie or they weren't they didn't have it together the high priest arose and said to him do you answer nothing jesus is not answering here what is it that these men testify against you what's why don't you say something but jesus kept silent the high priest answered and said to him i put you under oath by the living god tell us if you're the christ The Son of God. Verse 61. If you go back though, this is is why that was all done. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. There you have the high priest turning it around and then he knew that this is not going to go over. So he kind of twisted around and made Jesus say under oath who he was. But... They, they made the statement that uh, he had said he's going to destroy that temple and build it in three days. He didn't say that, did he? Exactly. Kind of close. But they, they misrepresent him there. Look in Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says it again. And he says this to the Pharisees because they said, okay, we'll believe you if you do a sign. Now here at the crucifixion, they're going to ask the same thing. They're going to demand a sign. They said, okay, if you really are him, what is the sign? He says, oh, I'm going to give you one sign. I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect the third day. Three days, three nights. So we know that they condemn him as a blasphemer, as uh, the Son of God. It says in verse, back to Matthew 27, verse 40, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now they, they've charged him with blasphemy. That doesn't go over with the Roman government, but here we are at the cross and the, the Jews are bringing out what the reason is that they put him up there. Here's the real reason. Because he said he's the Son of God. To the Romans, it was that he was supposed to be an insurrectionist, which Pilate was never convinced of that at all. But he had proved himself over and over and over and over again with all the miracles, the amazing scripture that he had taken and quoted and then used and uh, proved to them who he was. He... um, To them, they were convinced he's a blasphemer. And 
Everything's just turning around for a lot of people very quickly. The lies of the leaders are just being spread. They're believing. They're believing the leaders over the Son of God here. He was not the king they wanted also. And that's why, too, they can turn in a hurry. If he's the king, and he's up there on the cross, and he's a bloody mess, I don't even recognize him. If he really was that powerful, he could get off there. Like that. That's the one that I saw before, but I'm not so sure that's the one that I want now. He's dying. What good is he going to do me? So all those common people join in on this taunting and blaspheming him. Look back at Matthew 26, 63 and 64. Oh, we read that. Jesus kept silent. Okay. He was a son of God. That's, I definitely want to put that forth there. That's, that's the idea of, hey, he's charged with blasphemy, but they're saying that he is not the Son of God. You remember in John 10 where he says that he is the shepherd and he knows his sheep. And in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I'm going to lay my life down for the sheep, right? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. He did everything that the Father told him to do. His human nature, in one sense, wanted to escape that kind of crucifixion. But in another sense, he knew what he had to do humanly and being the Son of God. But we know that uh, he was human. He was like us. And so he felt everything. There was another occasion where somebody came along to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God. You guys remember that? Way back in Matthew chapter 4. Right at the uh, front of his ministry. What happens? He's baptized. He's now recognized as this Messiah, whether people knew that yet or not. It's another thing. But immediately, Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus doesn't have to obey Satan whatsoever. And he's not going to do it. Could he have done it? Absolutely. What does Jesus answer? The Scripture, of course. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how we live. So, Jesus won that battle. If you are the Son of God, you could do this. That's what they're saying out there. Now you have people doing the same thing. I think Satan is working in those people. Don't you think so? If you really are, come down. I think there might be part of Satan that would love for Jesus to come off that cross. (laughs) You know why, don't you? The mission wouldn't be done. So anyway, he didn't need the devil. He didn't need people tell him what to do because he knew exactly what he was there for and what he's going to do. He knew who he was. He knew what he was about. So go back to Matthew 27. We look at verse 41. We're looking at the cross, folks. This is some of the things that are going on 2,000 years ago. And I just want you to think, you know, this same kind of thing happens today. People are scorning Jesus. They scorn Christians. And there they are here, literally doing it as people are either literally or spiritually doing it today. 41, you have the religious leaders now who come into play. These are the religious people. Now, we've seen the bad people and we've seen the common people, some good, some not so good, some pretty good. Now we see the religious 
Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Right. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. That's the problem. They don't want him to be God. These are the instigators of this whole affair. Now, now we get to the very root and bottom of it. These would represent what is to be known as good people. People know these people. They do good things before people. People see their good works. Of course, we've seen these guys all through Matthew, haven't we? The elders, the scribes, Pharisees, Sanhedrin. They have been jealous of Jesus. He'd be taking away the jobs of the priest. Wouldn't need any priest anymore because he is the priest. Don't have to go to priest and bringing animal sacrifices anymore. He is the very bread of life. From the very outset of his ministry, they hated him. We know that. They were at the cross observing this. Jesus is helpless. He can't do anything this time. He can't do anything with the temple. You remember what He did to the temple a few days ago? And that just embarrassed the whole religious leaders clan there. And the people actually kind of cheered it on. It was a pretty, pretty good thing to do. Now these guys can say anything they want and He's not going to answer them back. What He usually do is answer back with questions that they couldn't answer. Now this time they've got him. They're going to take their pot shots at him. When he's down, let's kick him. Let's go for it, guys. We can do it now. It's a great opportunity, isn't it? He had silenced them so many times and you know how mad they have to be over all those times they had been embarrassed in front of people. Now they've got the people out there and they're saying, hey, if he's the Son of God... Look, he could come down. I don't see him coming down. Do you guys see that? And now you've got the crowd chanting and they continually just keep saying these things. That's what's happening while Jesus is up on the cross. We don't usually get that in some of the movies. You know, it's kind of quiet and you hear the wind and everything. Or a little breeze going by and, and you might hear Jesus say something or you might you know, hear the, the robbers saying something. That's about it. But you have a throng of people. And that just makes it that much more humiliating in that sense. Uh, they had looked like fools. They've got him. Now, there are not only chief priests there, but there are scribes and there are elders. Uh, look in Mark 8.31. There's a prophecy here that Mark brings out. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Boy, does that sound familiar. Now, he said this before it happened. He was even teaching this to his disciples before they even got into Jerusalem. He kept reminding them of that. Here's what's going to happen. And who does he mention here? He gets down to the details that the elders are going to have me crucified. The chief priests are going to do The scribes are going to do this. If you're a disciple, you're going, what? You know, surely, you know, they don't like you very well, but the, for the, you know, they're going to kill you? You know, Peter, you know what he said. Oh, no, you mustn't say that. They're not going to do that. You know, think positive here, Jesus. Your best life now. No, he has to do what he has to do. He, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be death. There's going to be the burial and the resurrection. So, 
Uh, again, this is just uh, something that came out. Uh, we can go to all the scriptures look at that, but I think we are familiar with that. Pharisees are involved in those too. Uh, in Matthew, it doesn't say that. It says chief priests, the scribes, the elders. What about those Pharisees? Matthew twelve fourteen. way back early in his ministry, look at this. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They had this all along that they had to kill him. He has to die. We have to destroy him. That was early on. Look in John 18.3. Look at the Pharisees as they are in on the arrest. We get scribes and chief priests and elders uh, here at the arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane. We get this too. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, weapons. So there you have Pharisees in on it. These are the conservative gentlemen. They're not the Sadducees who are liberals, but they are conservative. They know the law. They're right there with Pilate's soldiers trying to convince. You know, they went to Pilate and tried to convince him too. Then you have the Sanhedrin. If you look in 2659 of Matthew, Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court. It's the council. Sometimes you'll get that in your versions. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So they, we know that they were definitely in on this. They're the ones that's uh, making the judgments. Look in Mark 15.1. And this is right at the end of Mark, so it has to be right at the time of this. This is at the trial of Jesus with Pilate. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, delivered him to Pilate. So what do we have here? We have uh, all of these guys. They play a key role in the death of Christ. They're taunting him. They can't save themselves. Or, you know, he says or he can't save himself. If he did miracles for others, surely he would do that for himself if he's really God. He did miracles of healing. He cast out demons. They attributed that to Satan, right? That's what they said. But they couldn't deny that he did supernatural things. They, they knew that. Come down from the cross. So they asked for a sign before. And here in Matthew, there they are again asking for a sign. And they know that that's not going to come about. It's not going to happen. And this was known as um, a messianic statement. The synagogue. And I'm not going to turn there because we did earlier. Psalm 22.8, when we're talking about this taunting and coming down from the cross and he trusted in God and the deliverer. That's right out of Psalm 22.8. That was taught and it was well known by the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees. They knew Psalm 22.8 and how did they interpret it to be? That's Messiah. And this is what's going to happen at the cross. They're fulfilling that right there on the spot as they are saying, come down from the cross if you're really Him. you know, If He's the King. So, and so they're out there telling this so that the passers-by wouldn't be confused. And then they say they'll believe. We'll believe if you do that. The only sign that He's going to give them is His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if they didn't believe the miracles, why would they believe now? They they had full revelation. They had it all. They didn't need any more. And once again, they mentioned the Son of God. Verse 43, He trusts in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. That's what He said. See? And they made sure that everybody said that. That is one of the worst things you can do is say you're God. That you're the Son of God. That you're equal with God. And they mentioned it because they... They hate him as much as they do because of that. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 3, verse 2. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Now, 
David wrote this, and that's when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom. But David often wrote messianically, and that would be the thing here. There was, you know, they're saying, see, he has no help from God. He has no deliverer here. Uh, if you're in Psalms, turn to 71, verse 11. Saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there is none to deliver him. So the Pharisees are saying there's none to deliver him. The Father's not going to deliver him. If he's really his son, he'd do that. Now, the Romans, as we looked at last week, how they taunted Jesus and did all the things that they did and scourged him, are held responsible, but not anywhere near the way that these Jewish religious people and the common people and even the bad people are concerned. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. And it's proving it here, being manifested. They crucified him. Leaders are going to be held far more responsible. And that is the way that it always works throughout history. The more one is revealed about Christ, the more one has responsibility for what they have known about him. Incredible thought. Now, we go to verse 44. Matthew doesn't mention this other robber, the one who we know is going to be saved. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. We've seen three different kind of crowds, and here's where our outline would continue on. We did verse 44, but we have to use another scripture with this because we're going to close with the matter of grace. With all they have done with Jesus, and even to the time where they're just making fun of it's all a joke. This is a joke to the world, it's a, to the Romans, it's a joke to the Jewish religious people, to the religious people, to the world. This whole thing is just a crazy, mad joke. And they're making fun of him, and they're doing everything to make light of it all. But somewhere, sometime there, this robber is changed. And changed. He's awakened. And he realized that Jesus is perfectly innocent. He's done nothing. He's the Savior. He is the Savior that can save him from his sin. And he said, well, that's one of the world's worst. I mean, this guy is bad. <laughs> Look in Luke 23, 39. Then, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now, they both had been doing that, but here is one that they point out, and then you get another one. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He asked for mercy. Jesus said, hey, I already heard what you said a while ago, and that's it. No. <laughs> Doesn't say that, does he? Jesus said to him, look at this, Assuredly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. What? This has to confront all the religions of the world and any kind of Christianity that mixes in works. Matter of fact, it blows the whole baptism thing down when people say you have to be baptized before you can be a Christian. You know, baptismal regeneration. A lot of denominations actually teach that. You have to be baptized. And of course, what is one that you'll always use? What about the thief on the cross? Well, they'll have an answer for it because I'm sure they're confronted with that all the time, but that's the fact. They don't know the message of grace. 
completely did he? This man didn't have a baptism. But he went on into the kingdom. Am I speaking against baptism? Of course not. We know that that's a thing commanded by the Lord. It's an ordinance. That's a sacrament. However you want to term that. But what's important is this man recognized that he was Lord. He is repenting here. He knew what he deserved. He knew he needed. He deserved this punishment. And he knew that there was a punishment in the afterlife. And he says to Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, mercy. He realizes. He knows how beggarly that he really is. I think this is a great example of even despite all the wickedness, all the sin in the world, Jesus, whenever it seems totally impossible, and that's the way it is for every one of us. You see, we were the robbers. We were the common people. We were the religious. Whatever crowd you want to be, you're in that same position before Christ. And He can take the worst of sinners and convert them. One He did, one He didn't. We see it from the angle of man. This man did that. It, uh, it seemed like a hopeless situation. And of course, this man was with, uh, with the other robber, saying the same thing just a few moments before. Least likely to be saved, these kind of people. You'd think at least the religious people down below there, they would be the ones that, hey, they're going to make it in there. But Jesus delivered this man from his bondage. Yeah, he died. But he went to a far better place than he had never been before. The sinner repented. And he knew Jesus was the king. He knew Jesus was the savior. He knew that he could get him out of that situation. So he begs, please, for mercy. Because he knew Jesus was going into that kingdom and uh, that's what he wanted. He asked for mercy. He humbled himself here. He even told that other thief, don't you have a fear of God at all? Don't you know what's going on? Here you are dying right here. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Lord is our righteousness, wisdom, sanctification. Whenever He gives that wisdom to us, then we can respond. And that's what grace is all about. Nobody can do anything about it until He does that. He was poor in spirit. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He certainly knew that. Nobody had to convince him of it, did it? He knew where he was at. He needed God's grace. Doesn't everybody? Yeah, they all do. Most people don't know they need that grace. Matter of fact, most people think they're just fine or they just ignore it. But this shows his true faith. The faith that had been granted to him. The repentance that had been granted to him and Jesus then affirms it. This is the greatest moment of humiliation that we can see as he's on the cross and this is the greatest moment of glory that we know as of this day as we look at the cross. We can see glory while we see suffering. Do you see the great glory there? It's enough to take away our sin. It's enough to be forgiven. It's enough to be declared righteous. Many others had uh, come to Christ later that could have been taunting Christ underneath the cross that day. I don't think that this one thief was the only one saved. Later on, I think some things happened. If you look in Acts 2, verse 37... About ready to close this out, but let's just look at what happened to some other people. We're just not going to leave you in all this wickedness and sin and muck and mire. We're going to close with the great hope that we have. And I love to talk about grace. And so as we look at it in a short amount of time later, Acts 2.42, Peter's preaching. Um, did I say 42? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, this is the preaching of the Gospel, they were cut to the heart. Ripped. It was ripped open. The heart was opened. 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you think they had a fear there? Yeah. He said, this, this is the man that you put on the cross. You did this. You were the one there down below the cross. You were taunting him. doesn't say that, but might have been some of those. Peter said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God, you ever notice this verse? Will call. As many as the ones He will call, they will be saved. And He'll use the instrument of the Word of God and He'll use preachers to bring that to Him. He used Peter, who is a messenger. How beautiful are the feet of those messengers that bring the good news. Sounds like Romans 10, doesn't it? Peter was called to deliver the message of the good news, of the gospel, of the grace, of the glory of God. He delivered that to him, to them, and they received it to the ones who were called, those promises. Look in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. You remember some of those priests that were hanging around there? Causing all sorts of havoc for Christ. Later on, then the word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Look at this. Look at this. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Romans 6 talks about being obedient to the faith. You're obedient when He gives you that faith and you call upon Him. You can't call upon Him unless He's done that. Unless He's regenerating and started. Guess what happened? He took these nasty old priests who are the very ones that lied about Him in court, had Him put on the cross, and they had been doing all the sacrifices and they were afraid to lose their jobs and now you have the priest. And we're not talking one or two here, folks. We're talking a great many of them. Incredible. And how can you explain that? Humanly, you can't. Because it's all the grace of God. What a beautiful story this is at the cross. They had reviled Him. And here you see the great grace, the mercy of God. He could have put them all into hell. Immediately. He could have struck them dead that very day, right that very moment. As a matter of fact, if you were standing there and being a believer, him, you'd go, yes. <laughs> but you know what? We need to learn the grace of Christ. We need to learn that mercy. God is so patient. He's so gracious. And it's all by the working of God's sovereign grace. It's been said that uh, like a jewel's brilliance, against the backdrop of a black cloth. You know how those jewels just glitter? You've seen those in the jewelry stores and they, they usually put them in these boxes with a, with a black backdrop, what have you. Against the backdrop of sin, God's love is displayed against that backdrop of sin. The wickedness of man and there is His love just shining forth. We've seen some terrible things here at the cross. And that's man. And what you really see is what? The nature of man. You see the sinful condition of man. The fallen nature of man. We are fallen people. And we're just like everybody else. Except we're saved by grace. That's our message. I think we've got quite a message to take out, don't you guys think? It's a message to totally depend upon. Keep looking at that cross. What's our application? Even though the manifestation of sin is brought forth at the height of man's sin, I think that's the worst thing that could be as we look at this, the grace of God abounds more and more and more and to that we say, to the glory of God. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, You are great. You are mighty. You are awesome indeed. Thank You for the display that You have shown us at Golgotha. The Son was put there 
And there we find our forgiveness. We find everything we need in the person of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. And by that we're justified. And we can stand in your presence and not feel guilty. It's wiped away. Thank you, Lord, for this day and helping us remind remind to us what we have done to you and what you have done for us. What a blessing. We praise you. All glory to you. And may all your people here and connected with this church and the whole body of Christ throughout all the world learn better and more and more as each day goes by to glorify you for that is what it is all about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.